Come this morning to Philippians chapter 3. Our focus is on verses 4 through 7. As you're turning there, I do want to read an article from the Contra Costa Times, which is a, um, a newspaper out in California near where Yvonne grew up. In fact, when we go to vacation in California, I read the Contra Costa Times. And uh, this tells a story about something taking place in Hercules, about a 30-minute drive from Yvonne's folks' house. Um, this was Friday. Headline, majority of Hercules high school teachers vote no confidence in principle. 94% of tenured teachers at Hercules, Hercules High School have voted no confidence in principal Jennifer Bender, citing a bad school climate, lack of respect for teachers, and ineffective leadership, according to a teacher at school. Her expectations for students and teachers are not in line with reality. The no confidence resolution states, she has not engendered any trust in her staff nor has she created a safer school, but instead has created a toxic environment for students and staff. Taking the no-confidence vote was a, quote, an extraordinary step and a hard decision, but after observing Bender for a year and a half, teachers saw no way forward with her as principal, according to the resolution. The teacher, who did not want to be identified due to fear of retaliation, said the vote took place February 12th to the 25th. The two-page, single-space typed resolution paints a picture of a school that's gone far downhill since Bender's arrival one and a half years ago, that learning, safety, learning and safety have been adversely affected. It alleges the principal has alienated teachers and community members while failing to provide students with clear expectations. Quote, students know that this unacceptable behavior is tolerated, so they continue to act accordingly, the resolution states. This lack of reasonable expectations and clear guidelines is counterproductive for students and creates a toxic school climate. It has led to altercations, fights, and arrests of both students and parents. The no-confidence resolution alleges that Bender blames others for her own errors and vindictively docks the pay of teachers with whom she disagrees, reprimands them, or places letters in their personal files. Without the recognition of mistakes or the willingness to listen to key stakeholders, there is no hope for learning or improvement and thus no way forward, the resolution states. We as professionals and union members feel this cannot continue. So here's the ballot that the teachers cast. I, as a staff member at Hercules High School, have lost confidence in our principal, Ms. Bender. I feel the climate of our school has become bad for students and staff and there's no way forward with our current principal. 94% of tenured high school teachers. So you say, why in the world would I, I bring up something like that? Well, the title of my message this morning is No Confidence in the Flesh. And just as these teachers had no confidence in Miss Bender's ability to lead the school, so likewise, I would encourage you to put no confidence in your flesh to reach your way to God. Should the members of your body, your eyes and your ears and your feet and your toes, your intestines take up a no-confidence vote in your ability to stand before God and your merit? I hope the vote isn't 94%. I hope the vote is 100%. That's the clear application from our text this morning. Philippians 3. I want to read it for you. If you have a pew Bible, it's on page 155 of the New Testament that's in the back. I want to read in verse 1. 
But verses 4 is where our text begins. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence, there it is, no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Well, last week we looked at the first three verses of what I just read. Verse 1 is an exhortation. Rejoice in the Lord. Verse 2 is a warning. Beware of these false teachers. He identifies being dogs and evil workers and the false circumcision. And then he takes that false circumcision and verse 3 says, but we, worshipers of God, genuine believers in Jesus Christ, are the true circumcision. And then three characteristics. We worship in the Spirit of God. That is, Holy Spirit comes and, and dwells in us and brings us to God where we worship Him. We glory in Christ Jesus. That is, our joy is magnified when Christ is exalted. And finally, we put no confidence in the flesh. That is, we come to God not on the basis of our own merits, but we come solely on the merits of Jesus Christ. That's the Gospel. That's what the book of Philippians is telling us to rejoice in. Rejoice in the Gospel. Rejoice in the fact that Jesus Christ has come and done for us what we could never do for ourselves. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, as He said in John 14.6. And we come to the Father only through Him. We come not through our own righteousness, not through our works, not through our prayers, not through our birthright, not through our religious achievements. We come to God based on His merits, the merits of Jesus alone. There are verses in the Bible that tell us this. Titus 3.5 He saved us. God saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing, regeneration, renewing by the Holy Spirit. God saved us not because of the righteous things we did, but because of His grace and mercy He saved us. Or Ephesians 2.8.9 For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that... That salvation, that faith, that grace is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works that no one can boast. We, we have not got to God on the basis of our works. We have not been saved because of things that we have done. But God has granted us repentance. He has granted us faith. He has brought us to Him. And my aim this morning is really to convince you of this. I want you to put no confidence in your flesh. Right? When you come to Christ, don't come in any way trusting yourself. My aim this morning is for 100 vote, 100% vote of your members. My aim this morning is to convince you of the truth articulated in Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in Thee. God, You are the rock. You're the cleft. Let me get in You and let me be hidden there. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill Thy law's demands. Not all the good things that I do is going to fulfill your law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? 
All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. In other words, if, if I was zealous to the nth degree, if it never knew a rest, and if I cried and I poured out my tears and sorrow for my sin, say like Esau or Judas, apart from God saving, those things cannot atone for my sin. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. When we come to God, we don't come with anything of what we have. We just cling to the cross. Naked, come to Thee for dress. Helpless, look to Thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Right? We, we, we come to God naked and empty and broken and helpless. And so we need with God to be clothed and filled and fixed and helped. So church family, cling to the cross. Cling to the cross. Don't trust in the labors of your hands. Don't trust in your zeal. Don't trust in your tears. Don't trust in your righteousness. Fly to the fountain and say, wash me, Savior, or I die. Because you need to realize that unless the Savior washes you, you will die in your sin. And the only way for Him to wash you is to come by faith to Jesus. No confidence in the flesh. What Paul says in verse 3, where those who put no confidence in the flesh, he expands in verses 4 through 6 about one who can put confidence in the flesh. Then he explains it all in verse 7, gives a, a perspective. And I just say, don't pass upon this lightly. Don't just say, well, yeah, Steve, I, I know that. Isn't that the gospel? Isn't that what we rejoice in? Isn't that the bedrock here at Rock Valley Bible Church? Because I say this, that, that all of you struggle with this. I know that I struggle with this. Because spiritual pride can easily drift into your hearts. Especially as you come week in, week out, obtain a measure of theological understanding, especially as you come to know His Word, become familiar with the Bible, start memorizing it, and start really praying to the Lord consistently. You develop some good habits, and then you involve yourself in the church and in other people's lives. And, and, and you give. You know, we saw today how just we, we give... You start thinking, hmm, hmm, you know, look at I'm, I have a godly attitude now, and, and suddenly that can become your trust rather than Jesus Christ. And it's a particular warning to religious folks. It's a particular warning to people at Rock Valley Bible Church. The Pharisees failed this test. They were righteous. They got this. And then what do they do? They begin to trust in themselves that they were righteous. And remember the parable that Jesus said? to those who trusted themselves that they were righteous. In Luke chapter 18, he told the story of the Pharisee who stood up and said, God, look at how good I am. I pray. I fast twice a week. I tithe everything. I thank you that I'm not like this sinner over here. Look at how good I am. I got the spiritual pride. because And those things were true. And he was thanking God for those gifts. And then the sinner over here was beating his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, not even worthy to look up to the temple or look up to God. And Jesus said it's not the one who was proud and had everything going for him religiously that was right before God. It was the one who was broken. Because the one who was broken wasn't trusting in himself. But the Pharisee was trusting in himself that he was righteous. And, and I just know that, that our tendency here at Rockefeller Bible Church is to, is to fall into Phariseeism. Because we know what it means to walk with God. And we've tasted that. And we've tasted His goodness. And we can easily trust in our goodness or on our unfailing church attendance or our success over sin or our zeal for the Lord. And I'm just saying, don't trust in any of that. 
And it's easy to do. Charles Bridges gives a, a great illustration of this. Since I'm just trying to build the need for you a little bit. His great book, Discipline of, of Grace. He talks very early on, on page 13, about these two radically different days in your life. He says, consider two radically different days in your own life. The first one is a, a good day spiritually for you. You get up promptly when your alarm goes off. You have a refreshing and profitable quiet time as you read your Bible and pray. Your plans for the day generally fall into place and you somehow sense the presence of God with you. And to top it off, you unexpectedly have an opportunity to share the Gospel with someone who's truly searching. And as you talk with the person, you silently pray for the Holy Spirit to help you and to also work in your friend's heart. That's day number one. The second day is just the opposite. You don't arise at the first ring of your alarm. Instead, you shut it off and go back to sleep. When you finally awaken, it's too late to have a quiet time. You hurriedly gulp down some breakfast and rush off to a day's activity. You feel guilty about oversleeping and missing your quiet time. And things just go generally wrong all day. You become more and more irritable as the day wears on. And you certainly don't sense God's presence in your life. And that evening, however, you quite unexpectedly have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone who's really interested in receiving Christ as Savior. And then he asks the question, would you enter into those two witnessing opportunities with different degrees of confidence? Would you be less confident on the bad day than you were on the good day? Would you find it difficult to believe that God would bless you and use you in the midst of a rather bad spiritual day? And if you do, it shows that there's a measure of trust that you have in your flesh. That, oh, if I'm doing well and I'm obeying the Lord and I've got, every, I got all my ducks in the row, I read my Bible and I prayed today and things are going well, then you just expect God's blessing because you've somewhat earned it. But if things are going more poorly for you and you know, you've had a, a fight maybe with your wife and disagreed with someone at work and was a grumbling and complaining and then you think, well, what, God, God won't bless me today. If you think like that at all, it's... Because you're trusting in your flesh that when I'm good, God will bless. And when I'm bad, God will, will curse. Now, there's a degree of truth to that. But in, in, in the final analysis, though, we come not trusting in our righteous deeds at all. And I'm just saying it is very subtle. And I know what Jerry Bridges said hits me in the heart. When I have good days or bad days, where am I putting my confidence? Paul says, don't do it. Don't place your confidence in the flesh. And I say, may the Lord help us this morning to put confidence in the flesh. I want to pray, and then I want to get into our text just quickly. Father, I pray that this might ring deep into our hearts. I think of people here, if they're trusting in themselves, God, that You would expose that sin, God, of where they think that they can be righteous before You, apart from the work of Jesus Christ. So Lord, I, I pray, God, that You would convict hearts right now, that You would shine the light of the glory of the Gospel upon us. God, that, that knows of genuine forgiveness, of no condemnation by faith. God, and that we would go forth from this place longing for You and serving You with all of our heart and trusting in none of our works. Trusting in none of our righteousness. But longing to serve You and longing to be used of You. God, so help us obtain this balance. Help us in our minds. This is the one application today to put no confidence in the flesh.
Amen. All right, well, having mentioned the, the true circumcision in verse 3, having mentioned then how we put no confidence in the flesh, he begins in verse 4 by introducing a little biography. He says, I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. And it, it's not so much even that he just might put confidence in the flesh. He says, I have every reason to put confidence in the flesh. Because his life was a model of righteousness. He could very easily put his trust in the flesh as that Pharisee did that Jesus told about. Because he was, he was born to the right family. Born, done, went through the right rituals an expert in the law, zealous in his religion, and nobody could accuse him of any sin. If anyone else had confidence in the flesh, it was Paul. He could place confidence there. In fact, that's what he repeats twice. I myself might have confidence in the flesh. He says, listen, if, if anyone has confidence in the flesh, I far more. What he, what he said is this. He says, okay, you show me someone who can put confidence in the flesh and I will, I'll go on top of them. I will, I will top them. I will be, be better. Now, now, Paul here isn't boasting in verses 5 and 6, because basically he's going to say, well, yeah, look how good I am, but I trust none of it. He's not saying, well, look at how good I am. Hey, follow after me. He's saying, look at how good I am. Look at the righteous benefits that have come towards me. And I, as verse 7 says, count them but loss for the sake of Christ. And I think Paul does this here in verses 5 and 6. He gives his little biography here a little bit to combat and circumvent the argument of the false circumcision. They might easily say this, well, Paul, you say circumcision isn't, isn't the thing because you haven't been circumcised and you've not gone through all these rituals that we have. You're just jealous that you haven't obtained our standard. He says, that's not at all. No, I've obtained your standard. No, I've gone above your standard and I've got, I count that nothing. Paul had it all. When it comes to knowing Christ, all the things that were gained to Paul, loss. The application comes to us. Listen, if Paul is the most righteous person on the planet, which I believe he was, and all of his righteousness he considered as nothing, then, then we may attain to some of what Paul did, then we certainly ought to consider our righteousness as nothing as well. You know, it's, it's a little bit like the guy who climbs the corporate ladder. He climbed it. He made millions along the way. And, and when he was done, and he's nearing the end of his life, he comes and stands before us and he says this, you know what, I climbed the corporate ladder, I made millions, but it's, it's not worth it. It cost me my family. It cost me a wife because I was at the office, she divorced me. It cost me my children who never knew me because I was always gone making all this money. Sure, I've got a lot of money in the bank now. Sure, I've got all this financial freedom. I, I, I'm done with working because I retired early. But, but is it worth it? I don't have anybody to share it with. It is not worth it. And I'm telling you that when you get old, it's not the money that matters. You want your family. You want to share the fruit of your labor. So work less. Value your family. Dig deep into your relationships because that's where the true value lies. And, and, and this millionaire, right, who's climbed the corporate ladder speaks from experience. He says, I got to the top. It's not worth it. That's not the ladder to climb. And Paul is saying this, that I got to the top of religious righteousness. I climbed the religious ladder, made it to this top, and he says, it doesn't matter. You can have all the religious credentials in the world, but when you compare them with the value of the righteousness we have in Christ... All that righteousness is, is nothing. 
That's where this text is going. So let's dig into the text. We've seen verse 4, setting up the biography. And now we see in verses 5 and 6, his biography. My first point is this. I'm picking up the verbiage from verse 7. It says, what were gained to me, I've kind of lost. This was gain. So verses 4 through 6, or 5 through 6, this is gain. He puts forth seven things in his life that is gain. Four have been inherited just because of who he was. Three have been earned. So let's look at the inherited ones. First off, circumcised the eighth day. Literally, Paul was an eighth dayer. An eighth dayer. Eight days after his birth, he was circumcised. When God gave the covenant of circumcision to Abraham in Genesis 17, he said this, And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. In Leviticus chapter 12, verse 3, it was confirmed in the law. And that's been the custom of Jews all the way down through history. Jesus, you can read in Luke chapter 2, verse 21, was circumcised on the eighth day. And today there's still Jewish people who practice this custom. When we came to Paul in his circumcision, he was an eight-dayer. Now, I don't think it's an accident he mentioned circumcision here because the false teachers around the first century placed a high emphasis on circumcision, saying, unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And I think those are the ones he's talking about here in verse 2, about this false circumcision people. And he says this, when it comes to circumcision, these guys have nothing on me. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I wasn't circumcised when I was 13 like Ishmael. My parents were obedient to the Lord and saw to it that I was circumcised exactly according to the strictest measure of the law. So even before Paul had a say in anything, placed completely submissive under the law. I don't know how many Jews could have said that, these false teachers. I don't know. He continues to say, second characteristic that was inherited of the nation of Israel. That is, he wasn't a proselyte. He didn't come to faith later. No, he was born of Jewish parents in descendant of Israel. That means that he was a son of Abraham. He was a son of Isaac. And he was a son of Jacob, whose name was later changed to Israel. The child of the promise. Religiously, had great advantage and benefits. Paul would later write in Romans chapter 3, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what's the benefit of circumcision? And Paul says this, greater in every respect, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. To be a Jew meant that you were inside the covenant. It means that you had the oracles of God. The promises were to you as a Jew. God had given His Word. God had given His promise to the Jews. And they were to be a light for the nation. And God has always protected His people. Third, inherited promise. Speaks about the depth of his Jewish lineage. Says he's of the tribe of Benjamin. Jacob had 12 sons. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. Benjamin was the youngest. He's the most favorite, precious son of Jacob. And you can argue that in all these 12 tribes, the sons of Jacob, there were two that were the most faithful. Those were the ones, Judah and Benjamin. When the nation split shortly after Solomon's reign, the ten went up north, followed Jeroboam. Two stayed faithful to the Lord, following Rehoboam. They remained loyal. Yes, they had their struggles. They had their wicked kings. But of all the tribes, you say, okay, which are the best two tribes? You say Judah and Benjamin. So Judah gave the Messiah, Jesus, born of Judah. But from Benjamin came the first king, King Saul. 
probably after which Paul was named. Paul, before he became a Christian's name, was Saul. Surely named after the first king. Bethlehem was probably precious in God's sight because within the land of Bethlehem sat the city of Jerusalem where God chose to dwell. It's what I see of Benjamin. It's kind of a select tribe. He could have said maybe from the tribe of Judah. That would have been a great tribe. But different than I'm from the tribe of Manasseh or from the tribe of Dan. Totally different. But from the tribe of Judah or Benjamin. This is like, like the best of the tribes. Fourthly, he says, an inherited blessing. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Kind of sums up everything. He's as a pure Jew as a pure Jew can get. Now, there may well have been some questions about him because he was born in Tarsus, which is well north of Jerusalem. 100 miles, 200 miles, something like that. In a pagan city. You're born there. How can you be a Jew? Well, yes, he was born in a pagan surrounding, but he was brought up in a strong Jewish home where his parents raised him according to the law. And so, so Paul just wasn't born in a Jewish family, lived among pagans. No, he was born in a Jewish family and kept Jewish thoroughly. He wasn't like the widows of Acts chapter 6 who were Hellenistic, meaning that they were Greek-speaking. They were Jewish ethnically, but culturally Hellenistic. No, he was a Jew ethnically and culturally as well. He didn't have to purchase his way into a Jewish faith. Didn't proselytize. No, he was born into it. He was, if you pick a Hebrew, he would be the model Hebrew of Hebrews. That was his pedigree. He had like the best lineage you could have. And my guess is that that alone was sufficient to silence enough of the people who were troubling those at Philippi. I don't, I don't, I don't think many had the pedigree that Paul had. But then he goes on top of that. He says, not only my, my pedigree, but also... Right? What, I, what I did, what I earned. He says that's the law of Pharisee. Now, we hear Pharisee, we think hypocrite. Clean on the outside, filthy on the inside, just as Jesus blasted them. But think about what a Pharisee was. He was an expert in the law. He stayed long and hard to know what the Scripture says. And when there's questions, they were leaders of the people. And their questions, they would go to the Pharisees. Paul even boasted he was trained under Gamaliel, one of the most influential rabbis of his day. In several occasions, he boasted of his religious training as a Pharisee. He's talking to the Jewish people. Hey, listen, I've been trained as a Pharisee. And that's like a benefit. Like, like I've gone to seminary, guys. I know what I'm talking about. Not only did he have the best teachers, but he was one of the best students, having one of the best minds. Maybe you remember the time when Paul was giving his defense before Agrippa. Festus, who was governor at that time, shouted out after Paul was done preaching. He said, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning has driven you mad. He replied, I'm not out of my mind. I utter the words of sober truth. He's just, look at me, I'm not out of my mind. And the problem is that Festus couldn't handle his wisdom. When we work through the book of Acts, you see in his incredible mind how instantly he was converted on the road to Damascus. He goes into the synagogues of Damascus and begins immediately confounding the Jews. Like he, like he got it all. Oh yes, I understand the Old Testament. It all fell into place. And once he had his paradigm shift, he could instantly go and argue the Christian cause rather than the Jewish cause. He didn't have to study a long time in order to get that. And when there's a dispute in Jerusalem regarding circumcision and salvation, Paul went, stood toe-to-toe right with all the other apostles. Stood right with them in terms of intellect and knowledge and understanding. And then the amazing thing is, in Acts 17, when Paul goes to a pagan city like Athens, he was able to speak to them and quote from their own poets about what God is like. 
Eventually, Paul, this trained Jew, was, was uh, flexible enough to go and speak then to the Gentiles. His ministry was there. J. Oswald Sanders says a modern day parallel of learning would be this. This is Paul. One who could speak in Peking in Chinese, quoting Confucius and Manitius. Write closely reasoned theology in English and expound it in Oxford and defend his cause before a Soviet Academy of Scientists in Russian in Moscow. That's kind of the idea of who Paul was, just this elite intellectual. He was a Pharisee. And on top of that, there just was a, a zeal that the Pharisees had. I mean, they, they were strict according to the letter of the law, what they followed. It wasn't just academic learning. No, he, he followed what he learned and we see that in the next one, right? His zeal, as to zeal, he could have said a zeal, a righteous Pharisee, but as to zeal, he points out the persecutor of the church. Now, for this point, he goes back to his pre-conversion days when he was promoting Judaism and resisting anybody who contradicted that. In fact, anybody who contradicted Judaism, the faith of his fathers, Paul was first in line to persecute him. When Stephen was being stoned for believing in Christ, Paul was right there giving his hearty agreement with all that was taking place. And when Christianity was starting to spread, Paul was right there trying to squash it, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of Jesus, gathering papers from the high priest to go to Damascus with them, find anyone worshiping Jesus, bind him and bring him back to trial in Jerusalem as a heretic. Now, certainly those were evil things against our Lord, but they showed the tenacity of his faith. That, that he took the teachings of the Old Testament seriously. They were genuine and real. They were sincere, sincerely wrong, but they were sincere and passionate. He really believed that his way was the right way. Now, later he would denounce those things, calling himself a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, 1 Timothy 1.13, calling himself the chief of sinners because he persecuted Christ. And yet, it speaks of his passion, his great attempts in religion. And few Jews were ever as zealous as the Apostle Paul. Finally, the seventh characteristic of what he earned as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. What an astonishing admission. He says, when you look at the law and you try to measure up righteousness there and you compare the law to me, no accusation. Nothing can come. I transgressed no command. If there was a command to follow, I did that. Now, of course, Paul's only talking on the externals. In Romans chapter 7, you can read about just the internals of coveting and how that convicted his heart. But regarding the externals and judging not hearts, but just actions, Paul was blameless. If there was a sacrifice that needed to be offered, Paul offered that sacrifice every time. Never missed a sacrifice. If there was a religious festival to be observed, he went every time, three times a year to Jerusalem. If there were foods to abstain from, they never touched his lips. If there were things that would defile him, he stayed away and never touched them. When it came to the law, he was, was blameless. And I just say this, that I don't think there ever has been or was a more righteous person that ever lived. That's why Paul said in Galatians 1.14 that he was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries and my countrymen being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. I was zealous more extreme than anybody else. So here, here's Paul, most righteous guy in the land, right, looking according to how the, the, the law sets up externally where he is. And the only one who would succeed him would be Jesus, right? But, but he, exactly according to the law, 
And with that as a setup, verse 7 comes powerful then, right? But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. We've seen gain, 4 through 6. Now we see loss. Where one saw his circumcision and his heritage, his learning and zeal and his righteousness were gained before God, in light of the value of knowing Christ, he put it all lost. In many ways, Paul was the biggest loser. Only he didn't lose weight like the modern reality TV shows today. But he did lose all of his religious merit. His religious things don't help your standing before the Lord. Do you know this? Are you placing confidence in your flesh? Now, I doubt that any of you are trusting your circumcision. Right? I, I doubt... Many of you are, are trusting your Jewish heritage. Few of you are, are Jews. I, I don't think any of you would say, well, when it comes to God's requirement of my life, I'm blameless. Right? We've had enough of the way of the Master. We understand how we've all transgressed all the Ten Commandments because they're deep in, inside of us. I don't think you're entirely satisfied with your zeal for the Lord. So I, I don't think any of you are, are really going to reach up to Paul or, or where he is or particularly with some of the cultural things. But I, I fear some of you might subtly put forth a testimony like this. And maybe I was, I was baptized a baby. I was confirmed as a teenager. I earned the Timothy Award in Awana. I faithfully served in the youth group. was there every Wednesday night. I went to Bible college. I read my Bible and I pray every day. I never miss church. Unless I'm in the hospital. I tithe off my gross pay, not just my net. I support a poor child in a foreign land. Through Compassion International. I just I give away. And on top of that, I give, I support some missionaries. I go door to door witnessing every week. And... And even if that is your life and you do all those things and you do all those things really well, Paul would say all that in light of knowing Christ Jesus is loss. It's nothing. You might say, well, look at a good church person I am. Or, or, or look at the offices I hold. Or, or look at the work that I've done. Or look, look, look at how I've served. I've mowed the lawn at the church. I've served in the nursery for 15 years. I've been devoted to this children's ministry. Whatever it is that you're involved in, I just know that the tendency of your heart, the tendency of my heart, is to kind of like, oh, let's uh, put that on the check mark side when I stand before God. You just try this sometime. You just ask people in the world, you can stand before God, uh, what are you going to say? They say, well, I'm a pretty good person. And that is so deep in our hearts that that's where our tendency is going to be. We need to be told. That no, we're saved by grace. It's God's kindness. It's His mercy that saves us. It's not a, a righteousness. Count all those righteous things as lost. Now, I say it's good to be raised in a Christian home. It's good to win the Timothy Award. It's good never to miss church. Okay? It's good to tithe. It's, it's good to do what Israel did. They were 33 and a third percent is really what they were when they tithed. It's good to read your Bible every day. I want you to read your Bible every day. It's good to pray. It's good for you to be actively involved in evangelism. And do those things. But don't, in your heart and your mind, trust those things in standing before the Lord. 
how good you are. Because standing for God, utterly useless. There's no way. There's only one thing in which you can trust. Trust in Jesus Christ. That's where Paul's going. Verse 8, which we'll look at next week. More than that. So, not only is it loss, what was gained is now in the negative. He's going to go even more than that. I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And we'll get to that next week. But this week, I just want to focus on how much confidence are you placing in your flesh? Now, and it's hard. Now, because of so many things in life, we do have to have a, a level of confidence. Okay? If you're going to shoot a basketball, you have to vision it going through the hoop, and you've got to be confident when you shoot it, it's going to go in. Now, your expectation is it's not going to go in as often as you want, but you've got to have that expectation. If you're a salesman, you have to have a vision. I'm going to make this sale and have somewhat of a confidence that you'll make that sale. If you're a construction worker, you have to have confidence that you're doing things right, that the house will stand. The last thing we want is Christian construction workers say, oh, Paul says no confidence in the flesh. I don't know if it'll stand. I don't have any confidence that that house will stand. That's, that's not what we're talking about, okay? When it comes to life, have some confidence. Have some humble confidence. But confidence in the Lord that God has given me this understanding and will and, and I'm going to try. But, but when it comes to our standing before the Lord, which is what Paul is talking about here, when it comes to the Gospel, how it is we made right to God, throw all your confidence out the window. You cannot come to God with any confidence in your flesh. But, but here again, that doesn't mean that we can't come to God with, without conf, with, with confidence. Because we can. God wants us to be bold in our prayers. He wants us to come boldly to Him. But I would have you to note that when we approach Him, we approach Him with confidence. But notice where our confidence is. Why don't you turn one last text and then I'll close. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Forward about 15 pages or so. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Notice how Paul says, let's come confidently before the Lord. But notice where our confidence is. It's not in our own flesh. It's in the work of Christ. Therefore, Hebrews 4.14, since we have Jesus, this great high priest, who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a High priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near, here it is, with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And where is it that we get the confidence? We get the confidence not in ourselves that we're right, but we get our confidence because we have a great high priest who's going to sympathize with us and is ready and willing to extend mercy and grace to those who say, God, I need help. I, I'm not sufficient of myself. I, I need great help here. God, would you please come and help? And I trust that you will. I'm not claiming anything I am. I, I have no reason to claim that. I have no trust. All I can do is claim your righteousness and faith, your righteousness you have in Jesus, and my faith and trust in your word that you delight to bless those who simply trust in you.
That's where our confidence lies. It lies not in our flesh. It lies totally in the Lord. And I hope that my aim is accomplished today. The members of your body, 100%, let's not trust in Him. So let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that the, the glories of the Gospel here in Philippians would be clear. I think as we saw it last week and we see it this week and we'll see it again next week and the next week after that and the next week after that as we work our way through the book of Philippians. God, as, as Paul just in chapter 3 here just lifts up the Gospel, explains it what it is, and presses people to believe and trust in it. And so, Lord, I pray Your grace that You'd help us to believe and trust in the finished work of Jesus, not in our own righteousness, not in our heritage, not in the rituals that we've done, not in our rights, not in our giving, not in our zeal, but solely in Christ. Help us, O Lord, to be a church of people who glory in Christ Jesus. We boast in the cross because that's really the only ground of boasting that we have not in ours. And so I pray You'd be with us this week and teach us and show us where that our spiritual cry, pride rears its ugly head. So be our help, oh Lord. Be our strength. Strengthen us not to look to ourselves, but to look to Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen.